Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing on in a sermon series in the book of Exodus. If you remember, uh, last week we looked at one of these uh, real high points uh, in not only the book of Exodus, but in the entire uh, Bible, where God reveals Himself to Moses in the burning bush, and He commissions him and calls him to go on this mission to redeem His people. Uh, And He reveals His name to Moses, I am that I am. Our passage this morning is a bit of a transitional passage as Moses goes uh, from his encounter with God at the burning bush uh, towards Egypt to accomplish what God has given him to do. And so, our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 27. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son." At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he left him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Well, somehow this scene uh, was left out of the prince of Egypt when they went to uh, make the animated story of the story of Moses and the Exodus Right, if you learned uh, the story of Exodus through that animated film or through your childhood Sunday school classes, you might have missed the story of that time that God almost killed Moses 
uh, until his wife circumcised their son and wiped the blood on his feet and God relented. Uh, This is, to be sure, an odd story. This is a strange story that that often doesn't uh, make the cut when we decide what uh, to focus on in this narrative. So how do we make sense of the Bible's strange stories like this one? Right? How do we make sense uh, out of a story that shows us a God uh, who seems so far removed from how we think God should be? How do we uh, encounter a story like this? Do we just chalk them up as artifacts of another world? Right? This is one of those bloody and strange Old Testament stories that has nothing to do uh, with us and our spirituality and our life in the contemporary world. So do we just say that it's too far removed from us? No. Stories like this one are given to us precisely because of how strange they are to us. They confront us and they shock us uh, out of building a God in our own image. C.S. Lewis uh, talked about the chronological snobbery, a great phrase, the chronological snobbery that can make us a prison of our own age, right? Where we're convinced that our ways of thinking, our ways of acting, our ways of living uh, are vastly superior to all of the human beings who came before us. And so, because we're prone to make God in our own image, to build our own ideas about what we think God must be like, about what kinds of things we think God must be about and what we assume God wants out of us. We're prone to build those things out of our own contemporary cultural views. And so when we bump into a story like this one, a story that is bloody and strange and odd, it confronts us and and requires us to adjust our preconceived notions to the God who is, right? To the God who revealed himself to Moses, as the I am, the God who is the same God to Moses that he is to us, the God who is the same God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus, the God who was the Father and is the Father that Jesus reveals. So the first key to making sense of a passage like this one is to remember the larger story in which it's a part. Right? It's to situate this story in the midst of the larger story of what God's doing and who God is. And we see that really clearly uh, in verse 22, when God is giving Moses his message to tell Pharaoh. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Right, right there in, in, in a two little verses are really the story of the entire Bible. Uh, in those verses, we see what God is about in the world, namely redemption. God is about redeeming His children, taking His sons and daughters that He's, uh, that he's already set His love on and liberating them because of that love out of slavery for a life of worship. Right? He says that they can let them go so that they can serve me. Right? And that's really the entire story of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is about freedom from slavery for the purpose of worship. Right? The, the, the narratives, the stories of Exodus take up about the first half of the book. 
And after that, it gets to a part that if it comes up in your daily Bible reading, you're likely to skip. It's these instructions for how God's to be worshipped in the temple and in the tabernacle. What kind of clothes the priests are supposed to wear. What kind of sacrifices are to be offered. Because in the Bible, those two things go together and they go together in Exodus. God's redeeming and rescuing work. Plus, our call to worship Him, to serve Him with our whole lives as we've just sung so beautifully. I don't know if it was beautiful where you were sitting, but from here it was beautiful. I don't know what your voices sound like, but ours were beautiful. God frees us in order to live a life of worship. Let my son go that he might worship them, worship me. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, the incredible unity in the story of the Bible. That if you were to go up uh, to a believer in the Old Testament, an Israelite in the Old Testament, and to ask them, what do you believe? Who do you believe that God is? They could have said, well, God is the God who calls me his son. And when I was enslaved and oppressed by powers too great for me, he sent a mediator to come to me and to rescue me, and he rescued me through powerful signs. He rescued me through sacrifice and bloodshed. And then he led me out on a journey and I'm waiting for him to bring me into the promised land that he's promised to give me. And in the meantime, he guides me. He's given me his law. And because of my ongoing sin, he's given me means of forgiveness. He's given me the sacrifices. It's amazingly close to what the Christian faith believes, right? That when we were slaves, not to Egypt, but to sin and death, he sent the mediator of his covenant, Jesus, to come and through miracles and bloodshed, to lead us out and to guide us through this life under his teaching and to lead us at last into the promised land. Right? The Bible tells one overarching story. The God of Moses is the God of Jesus, is your God and my God. So the story of the Bible, the story that moves the entire plot forward, the the story that makes sense of these stories that are hard to make sense of is the story of God's redemption. Well, how does God accomplish this story of redemption? How does God move the redemptive plot of the Bible forward? Two ways, through judgment and mercy. We see it over and over in the Bible. God moves the story forward through his two acts of judgment and mercy. That if this world is to be redeemed, if this world is to be saved, it's going to require the judgment of evil. We see this also there in verse 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Right? You're going to do these amazing miracles. You're going to perform these signs, but Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. Now, the subject of Pharaoh's heart uh, is a matter of some interest in the Bible. It's something that's talked about over and over again. It's mentioned nine times in the book of Exodus alone and then referenced several times after that, including in the New Testament. It's usually uh, in reference to this adjective that Pharaoh's heart was a hard heart. Now, uh, here it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. In the majority of the times that that Pharaoh's heart is discussed in the Bible, uh, the scriptures tell us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But there's other times where it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
There's other times where Pharaoh's heart is just described as hard. So uh, the one thing we know is that Pharaoh had a hard heart. Uh, But the question that comes to us is why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Or was there some other reason that Pharaoh's heart was in a state of hardness? Romans chapter 9, Paul says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. See there are the two judgment and mercy. He hardens the heart that he will, and he shows mercy where he will. It seems from Romans 9 that God's purpose here in hardening Pharaoh's heart is that he would display his power over Pharaoh through his miraculous signs. That he would show that his kingdom is greater than Pharaoh's kingdom, that his will is more unblockable and unstoppable than even the most powerful will of man. And so Pharaoh's heart remains hard so that God could show his power in judging Pharaoh and in freeing his people. But Pharaoh also hardens his own heart, right? It can be said that, uh, truly said, that because of sin, that the default state of the human heart is hardness, right? That though we were created in the garden with soft hearts to love one another and to love God, that sin is a hardening of the heart. It's a hardening of the heart on itself. It's a hardening of the heart against God and against our neighbors. And so we're all accountable for the hardness of our own hearts because it is owing to our own sin that we harden our hearts. That we say that I'm not going to let myself care as much about my neighbor and their situation. I'm not going to let my heart remain soft uh, and sensitive before God. That sin hardens the heart unless God softens it. So we could say that when a heart is hard and remains hard, that it's because God has not softened it. Right? That apart from the divine intervention of God, each and every one of us is left with a hard heart. Each and every one of us is left with a heart that doesn't love God or neighbor, but instead is calcified and hardened against God. Unless God, by His Spirit, softens it. Unless God, by His Spirit, changes our hearts. None of us are capable of having a soft heart. Israel, we're told, later in Exodus, will harden their hearts against God. And so the question is, the question is, do we have hard hearts or soft hearts before God? You know, Pharaoh, uh, because of this, this, this reality, the fact that our hearts are hard against God until he softens them, means that no one like Pharaoh who suffers judgment can claim that they didn't get something they deserve. Right, that Pharaoh's hard was, heart was hard, not because um, of some uh, unjust act of God, 
but rather his heart stayed hard because he stayed hard. But on the other side, those who are shown mercy can't say that we've gotten what we've deserved, right? That God's loved us, God's called us his sons and daughters because we deserved it, but only because God chose by his grace to soften our hearts and to give us life and to give us salvation. The story moves forward with judgment. We cannot have salvation without God's judgment against evil. Right? We don't like this uh, in our world. Right? Culturally, we don't like the idea of a God who judges, of a God who looks uh, on human life and finds something in it uh, that's worthy of his judgment. And yet, uh, I promise you that these verses about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the subsequent judgment of Pharaoh, I guarantee you that no one in Israel thought this was bad news. Right? No one in Israel thought, oh God, shouldn't you be more kind to Pharaoh? Right? To, to say that the world doesn't needs God, need God's judgment is honestly the privilege of a people who have not lived in the face of evil and under the cruel oppression of evil. Because when you look evil in the face and you look your own powerlessness against evil in the face, you know that the only hope you have is in divine judgment. Remember, this is the same Pharaoh. The same Pharaoh who willed that Israel should be enslaved so that they not grow too powerful for him. It's the same Pharaoh that decreed that the baby boys of Israel should be slaughtered in order to slowly kill the people of Israel. When you've been an enslaved people, when you've been a hunted people, when you've seen your own children thrown into death because of the will of an evil person, under an evil system, when God announces judgment on that man and on that system, you don't stop and think, oh no, you know, I like to think of God as kinder. No, you think, God, please, render your judgment, crush evil, set us free. And so God's judgment is necessary for salvation. But the hard news and the reason that we bristle against God's judgment is because we know that if Pharaoh is accountable to God's judgment, then we are too. Right? If uh, we can't have a God who just judges the people that we want to see judged. Right? We can't have a God who just judges uh, evil out there without also having a God who has the right to judge evil in here. Right? The God who judges Pharaoh's selfishness and his murder and his enslaving is the same God who judges my anger and my greed and my selfishness. We can't have salvation without judgment. But left to ourselves, do we have any hope of salvation with judgment? And so we come to the next part of this strange story. That God's story of redemption doesn't just move forward through judgment, but also by mercy. This doesn't look much like mercy at first. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to put him to death. We don't know exactly what's going on here. 
right? Some commentators have, have thought that Moses, because he's not really acting in this story, might have been in some kind of seizure or in some kind of coma, that he was so afflicted by some kind of illness that he couldn't respond to God and act. And so his wife, Zipporah, has to act on his behalf. But it's evident that his life is in danger and that it's due, it's owing to God coming to put him to death. And so, what's going on here? Well, we have our hint in what Zipporah does. Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Circumcision, uh, what Zipporah does to her son here, was the mark of God's covenant from the book of Genesis. Right When God made his covenant with Abraham, he, circumcised, he had Abraham be circumcised, and not, over, not only Abraham but also his sons and all who were in his house. That the way that God's mercy goes forward in the Bible is through his covenant. That it's his covenant with Abraham that makes him the God, not only of Abraham, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Moses, and the God of the Israelites. That God works through his covenant. Covenant is is simply a word for his pledged love. Right? It's his covenant through which God comes down from heaven and enters into a personal relationship with his people. A relationship that's about his grace. Right? We're told over and over that it's not because Abraham was particularly good or strong or faithful. Right? It was solely because of God's love. It's not that his uh, nation was going to be the strongest or the wisest, but simply because God called them his sons and his daughters. It's initiated by God's grace. And then it calls us to a life of loyalty. It calls us to a life lived in gratitude for the grace that's been given to us. It calls Moses to a life of gratitude. And yet Moses had married Zipporah. Zipporah wasn't an Israelite woman. She was a Midianite. So uh, she was outside of the covenant people of Israel. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see that the covenant's not narrowly limited to Israel, right? We're going to see foreigners, uh, people who weren't born into Israel, come into the covenant. Um, Not long ago, we preached to the book of Ruth, which is another story of a Moabite woman coming into the covenant by marriage. People can come into this covenant by marriage through faith, but the, the story does move forward as God works through his people generation to generation. And so Moses married outside of the covenant people, but then he and Zipporah did not apparently circumcise their sons. They didn't apply the mark of the covenant to their children. And so that's what puts Moses under God's judgment here. I think it's important, uh, this story, because it reminds us that while Moses is, in many ways, the hero of the book of Exodus, in many ways, Moses is the most important figure from an earthly standpoint of God's redemption here. So that while Moses is very important, Moses isn't the most important, right? Moses isn't the redeemer. God is the redeemer. And God redeems through his covenant. And so Moses can't do anything apart from being included in the grace of God. Moses can't do it on his own. Moses can't do it through his own power, through his own effort, through his own wisdom. Moses has to himself be marked as one who's under the covenant of God. Marked by one who is covered 
by God's grace. And so Moses and his family here go through uh, what can be seen as a precursor to the Passover story. Right, there's already been one precursor, this hint at the Passover. In verse 23, when rehearsing uh, what Moses is to say to Pharaoh, God says, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Right, this is a hint towards the future in the, in the book of Exodus where God will visit the nation of Egypt and strike down the firstborn children of every house unless they bear the blood on the doorpost, the blood of the Passover lamb. And so it's foreshadowed there, and then the Passover again, this redemption through being covered in blood, is figured again here. It's as though Moses himself has to go through a Passover, covered in blood, marked by the covenant, and passed over by God's judgment, so that he can then lead his people through this Passover. Moses needs to be marked by the blood of the covenant. And so set apart as one who's an object of God's grace. And so Zipporah does so. She touches his feet. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. It's a strange phrase here, but it means uh, that we are now in this covenant together. Bride and groom, husband and wife. As we should have been all along. In covenant before God with our children. Zipporah is a model for us here of what we do when confronted with God's judgment. Right, while Pharaoh's heart was hardened, when confronted with God's judgment, Zipporah repents. She doesn't say, oh no, I guess Moses is going to die. She doesn't say, oh well, I guess we did it wrong. She repents. She says, oh no, this is what we have to do. We have to bring ourselves back into and under the grace of God. And so she repents and she entrusts herself and her family and her husband to God's grace through the blood of the covenant. Friends, Christ uh, is our Passover lamb. He is the one that the Passover points towards. He is the one that this story points towards. Right? That when we, when we're, we find ourselves in need of God's redemption, we find ourselves in a story moving forward with judgment and mercy. How do we ensure that we are covered by God's mercy and not under His judgment? It's by coming under the blood of Christ. Under the one who was sacrificed on our behalf. So that we could be marked, passed over from God's judgment, sealed into His covenant, and objects of His grace. This is what we do when we baptize believers in our children in our church. Putting on a new mark of the covenant, no longer marked uh, by blood, no longer marked by the literal uh, circumcision, but marked now by a covenant of grace, a covenant where the blood has already been shed by Christ. And so we are sprinkled and sealed into His grace through the waters of baptism, marked as His people, His sons and daughters. God spoke through Moses to Pharaoh, let my sons go so that they might serve me. And friends, that's his word over our lives in Christ. We are set free from sin, set free from slavery, that we could live a life of wholehearted service and worship and devotion to our God. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we confess that we each in our own way, like Moses, are forgetful of you. We forget the bond of your covenant by which you have made us your own. We instead uh, live independently of your grace. Lord, we pray that we would, like Zipporah, repent quickly and easily. Lord, that our lives would be marked by the simple reliance on grace that's quick to acknowledge our sin, quick to repent, quick to return to your mercy. Lord, we pray that you would save us from our own hard hearts, that you would soften our hearts, that we might be objects of your mercy, not objects of your judgment. Lord, we pray that you would help us when our hearts are hard, when our sin uh, keeps us locked in to our old ways and our own pattern, our old uh, ways of life. Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, give us soft hearts. Soften our hearts by your grace that we might return to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.